I love it when I can introduce you to something that I'm pretty sure you haven't heard of before. Now, perhaps if you're an ancient literature scholar, you will have heard of this poet we're going to talk about today. But I recently learned about her and have had fun digging into her story and her poetry. So I'm going to introduce you to a new poet, hopefully, today. Her name is Irina. She lived sometime in the 4th century BC, or perhaps earlier. And we're going to talk about her one surviving poem today. This is the Poetry Corner Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. Thanks for listening. So Irina, who is she? Well, Irina is often seen as the second great female poet of the ancient Greek world. Now, who's the greatest poet who's a woman of the ancient Greek world? The answer to that is, according to everyone who's lived from the ancients to today, the answer to that is Sappho. Sappho, the great lyric poet. Sappho, who, it said, invented the guitar pick, or at least one version of the guitar pick. I know that's a weird thing to have invented, but apparently no one was plucking their lyre strings with a little piece of something before Sappho came along and said, hey, you know what? What if we take a little piece of bone and pluck our lyre strings with it? And people thought, hey, that's great. And, you know, now rock stars everywhere are indebted to, to Sappho. But what Sappho did that's perhaps even more important is popularize what we think of as the love poem. Today, when we think of poetry... We often think of singing the praises of your beloved. Ah, my beloved's eyes are like the sea at sunset. Or, if you want to be a little more sly and silly, like Shakespeare was, my mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. We expect him to say, my mistress' eyes are bright like the sun. They're nothing like the sun. And in that famous sonnet, he goes on and says, you know, my mistress, she's not the most beautiful woman in the world, but darn it if I don't love her. So, okay, okay. Uh, Shakespeare, you get to be sly like that. But who was sly like that before you? Sappho. Sappho invents both the earnest love poem, the my beloved is magnificent, oh my gosh, my heart is beating so hard just looking at them, and also the sly love poem, the you're not so great, get off your high horse, but ah, heck, I love you anyway. Sappho invents both kinds. Arina, though, or Arina, is writing in the tradition of Sappho, this interpersonal lyric poem, but she writes about friendship, not necessarily romantic love. Now, from the ancients, we hear that Irina wrote a long poem of about 300 lines called the distaff. Now, a distaff was used in weaving. Weaving was a woman's work. The most famous weaver in ancient literature is perhaps Penelope herself, the wife of Odysseus. You remember Penelope? She weaves this tapestry, and she says when she's finished with it, she'll marry someone, uh, someone of her many suitors, because, of course, Odysseus, everyone thinks, is lost at sea and will never return. But every night, of course, she unweaves what she wove during the day and then has to reweave it. And the suitors eventually, they're not the brightest bunch, catch on and say, hey, wait a minute, I think we're being tricked here. Luckily, of course, Odysseus comes back and kills all the suitors and uh, reunites with his wife. And they all live, well, as happily ever after as you can if you're Odysseus. The distaff then is a poem that is riffing on this idea that women are weavers. And Irina, and one of the reasons I like her is because this idea, I think, is very close to my heart in my poetics. She is the weaver not of threads, but of words, but of stories. The distaff 
used to exist until the 20th century only in tiny little fragments. One of the only fragments we had of it for thousands of years was this fragment. From here an empty echo reaches into Hades, but there is silence amongst the dead, and darkness closes their eyes. So the distaff was a sad poem. It seems to be mourning someone. Another fragment that we had of it was Pompilus, escort fish, you send sailors a fair passage from the stern, please escort my dear friend. Okay, so a friend is being escorted somewhere. Where? Not just, you know, to another island or uh, to across uh, a river, but escorted probably into Hades. So th this is a lament over a dead friend. That's all we had. But in 1938, we discovered, as sometimes happens, a huge chunk of the poem, relatively speaking, so several full stanzas that actually give us what the ancients read and admired in Irina. So I'm going to read, it's about 25 lines, I'm going to read what we found of the distaff and what confirms for us Irina's place as a great early Greek poet. Into the deep wave you jumped from the white horses with a crazy step. I've got you, I cried, my friend. And when you were the tortoise jumping out, you ran through the great hall's court. Unhappy Baucus, these are my laments as I cry for you deeply. These are your footprints resting in my heart, dear girl, still warm. But what we once loved is now already ashes. Young girls, we held our dolls in our bedrooms, like new wives, hearts unbroken. Near dawn, your mother, who handed out wool to her workers and attendants, came in and called you to help with salted meat. What terror the monster Mormo brought when we were both little girls. On her head were massive ears, and she walked on four legs and kept changing her face. But when you went to the bed of a man, you forgot all you heard from your mother while still a child, my dear Baucus. Aphrodite filled your thoughts with forgetting. As I weep for you now, I desert your last rites, for my feet may not leave the house and become unclean, nor is it right for me to look upon your corpse, nor cry with my hair uncovered, but a red shame divides me. How fantastic it must have been to find those lines. What do we have here? Well, as was suspected, this is a lament for a dead friend. And Irina gives us this beautiful picture of girlhood in ancient Greece. Now, as I mentioned, the 4th century is often given as her date. An early Greek source says it was around 350 that she wrote. In fact, I think it's Eusebius who gives us 350. But earlier accounts say, in fact, she lived during the time of Sappho, which would have been in the 600s. There's somewhat of a consensus that says, no, the 300s is more correct, but Someone says that someone made a sculpture of her in the 500s, which wouldn't make sense if she lived in the 300s. So at some point she lived, and she gained renown for this poem. And this poem gives us such a window into the world of these two characters, the speaker and Baucus. Now, is this is this autobiographical? Is this, uh, is this a literary invention of two friends? We don't know, but either way, it seems so modern to me in its discussion of what they did as kids. Young girls, we held our dolls in our bedrooms like new wives, hearts unbroken. Dolls, girlhood, unbroken hearts, those are almost 
now tropes of what happens early on in a story. If you have two girlhood friends whose hearts are unbroken, what's going to happen by the end? Well, they're probably going to grow up and their hearts are probably going to be broken. Now, we often expect they'll be broken by a man. Men are interesting in this poem because they're not the main focus. And in fact, the broken heart by the end of the poem is the speaker for her friend who has died. We have the mother, too. We, we get this fun domestic image of near dawn, your mother who handed out wool to her workers and attendants came in and called you to help with salted meat. Uh, they're playing and her mom comes in and says, no, you have to help in the kitchen. Uh, it, it's a wonderful little image, right? This isn't of arms and the man I sing. This isn't wrath, sing the wrath of Peleus on Achilles, but uh, maybe when we're tired of Homer and Virgil, maybe when we think, uh, Homer and Virgil, okay, great heroes. What, what were common people doing? Well, they were playing with their dolls. They were helping mom in the kitchen. It feels a little more realist, a little more quotidian. And that's something I think we've prized in the 20th and 21st century. We like common stories of common folk. But it's not contemporary. And, and we see this Soon after this, what terror the monster Mormo brought when we were both little girls. On her head were massive ears, and she walked on four legs and kept changing her face. This, this is great. We were both scared of this fairy tale, you know, bogeyman or bogeywoman Mormo. I don't know why, but this reminds me a, a little bit of T.S. Eliot at the beginning of The Wasteland, where he talks about, you know, when I was a girl, we gathered hyacinths, and we rode on the sled, and you said, Marie, Marie, hold tight. And, and I wonder, in fact, if Eliot is not riffing on these early Greek poems that give us little snapshots of Greek life, especially of, of Greek girls. But the fact that the monster Mormo terrified them, we have this idea of childhood fear, right? You're afraid of, of something that's not going to hurt you. You're, you're afraid of an imitation of true terror. And it, it seems connected to folklore, to mythology. But Irina takes very seriously Greek mythology, especially the worship of Aphrodite. Uh, in the next section, she says, but when you went to the bed of a man, Oh, such an important moment in stories like this. They're girls together, and then a man comes in and ruins everything. Or we don't get any indication that he was unfaithful or, or, or horrible or even broke her heart. But those of us who had childhood friends and maybe grew apart, perhaps because of you know marriage or, or even dating, we know this, that there's sort of this moment where you realize, oh, I'm not just going to be friends with everyone anymore. All of a sudden, the romantic aspects the marital aspects of life are going to create barriers in ways uh, between me and my friends in ways that we were once too young for but now aren't. You went to the bed of a man. You forgot all you heard from your mother while still a child. It's not just you forgot our friendship. You forgot what your mother told you. And then there's this line that, that actually lays the blame at the feet of, of Aphrodite. My dear Baucus, Aphrodite filled your thoughts with forgetting. Uh, it's a fantastic little paradox. Your thoughts were filled, not with new thoughts, but with forgetting. Forgetting flowed in. Uh, the river Lethe is an image of flowing forgetfulness. And it's Aphrodite who makes her forget her mother. I kind of am reading into it this implication that you kind of forgot me, Baucus. Or at least you forgot or perhaps could no longer be in a place where we could be those little girls, hearts unbroken, clutching our dolls. As I weep for you now, I desert your last rites. 
for my feet may not leave the house and become unclean, nor is it right for me to look upon your corpse, nor cry with my hair uncovered. This, this is such, such a kind of bitter last stanza. It seems like she's going to lead up to you, and now I mourn you, and, you know, go off into the underworld. And we actually had that fragment earlier. Uh, you send sailors fair passage from the stern, please escort my dear friend. So we ended up there, probably. But there's this idea that I, the speaker, there's something improper about actually going and seeing your corpse, going to physically say goodbye. Now, apparently critics are divided as to exactly what is being referred to here. Either Irina was somehow ritually unprepared or unclean and so couldn't go to the funeral of Baucus or perhaps it was that in her in her city or in her culture it was improper for any woman to go to a funeral it's it's unclear either way either through an individual uh, cultural prohibition or a general cultural prohibition of women from going to funerals there's this feeling that I can't even properly mourn you. I'm held back. And then the final sentence is, a red shame divides me. It's kind of heartbreaking. I want to mourn you and I can't. I think for those of us who have been mourners, over friends, loved ones, family members, we know that even, even at a funeral, even doing the customary cultural things, we can feel like we're not doing it right. And part of this is... Dealing with death and grief is a mystery, right? We don't understand it. We don't understand what we're supposed to do. And Irina, from early Greece, gives us this, this picture of sweet memories, of feeling conflicted about, about growing up, about becoming, you know, becoming romantic, erotic beings, and feeling like that somehow was a betrayal of childhood, and then meeting the greater mystery, death. I've talked before about the silly modern notion that it's only the contemporary poets, the poets who, who get us and who live in our culture or in our world that can really speak to human experience in a way that, that most moves us. No, Irina from, from 350 BC can remind us, hey, our friendships, our romantic relationships, our relationships with our parents, these are things that have always been important. This translation I read to you was in free verse. Uh, the original was written in hexameter and how much even more powerful hexameter would be that da 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 which in fact is the meter of Homer and Virgil, but is converted here by Irina to sing not of battle and of the great deeds of men, but of the lives of women and their experience and their their frustrations and, and their their joyful memories. This is what poetry can do for us. It can do both. This has been the Poetry Corner Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. Thanks for listening. If you want to contact us with questions, comments, recommendations, email us at poetrycorner at stconstantine.org. Thank you.